the elders are going to come up and they're going to be passing communion elements. I, in working through my sermon this past week, I said, we have got to have communion. And by the end of this sermon, you're going to understand why. Okay? So they're going to pass the elements. If you are a repenting believer in Jesus Christ, we welcome you to participate in this. Uh, but don't, don't take them yet. Let's wait until the end of the sermon, and we will rejoice together in the realities that God has taught us. So I know that could be a little distracting, but hopefully, hopefully you can listen uh, as they're passing things. If you were here to study um, last week's message in Genesis, you might have felt a mixture of emotions from maybe encouragement to shame. And you may have been reminded of certain sins in your own life that you feel ashamed about. And as, so you walked away, you got into your car, and maybe you said to yourself, why do I do that? Why do I keep doing that thing? Why am I such a mess? Why do I feel this way? And so then as maybe you're driving off or thinking about the message last week, in an effort to try to prove to yourself that you're not as bad as you hope you're not, you said something like, I'm never going to do it again. Now, maybe that wasn't you last week, but can we all relate to that sentiment and to that type of mentality? Some of you, maybe you've said, I don't, I don't make those promises anymore because I know I always fail them. So I'm not going to say I'm never going to do it again. But maybe you pendulum swung to the other side to be like, so who cares? Like, it doesn't really matter. If I'm going to keep failing anyway, I might as well do it over and over and over again. We resort to all kinds of methods to deal with feelings of guilt and shame. Even, even to the point to where sometimes people think that if they just beat themselves up enough, they'll feel bad enough, and then they're going to stop. How many of you have ever tried that method before? Raise hands. I know I have. Does it work? No. Beating ourselves up, shaming ourselves doesn't stop it. We get into these different kinds of cycles, and we ask ourselves, why do I do this? How do I get out of this cycle of shame? And these questions are good questions to ask, and I actually think these are questions that God answers at the beginning of Genesis. God, in his mercy, reveals to us. He reveals to us why we do what we do, and he reveals to us why there's so much brokenness, not only in the world, but within us, and God himself points us where eternal hope can be found. We see all of this and more even in the text that we're studying today. So actually, before we read in this text, I want to get a few brief points brought out from Genesis 1 and 2, kind of serving as a foundation here for the sermon. I want to talk first on what is the mission of humanity? What's the mission that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden? Kaiki, in preaching a couple of weeks ago, talked about how the Garden of Eden is the temple of God, and so man is to serve as a priest within that temple. They're to rule under God's rule in order to be the supreme and primary examples of worshiping God and to show forth the glory of God. But what we also see in God's command for Adam and Eve is that they are to protect the garden, 
from anything that would threaten the glory of God or threaten the glory of God to be on display. This is really important. The word subdue has the idea with it that there needs to be a bringing of submission to things. That if there's a rebellion, Adam and Eve are going to be the ones to kill it. God's design and goal, or God's, God's commission, I'll say this, God's commission to Adam and Eve was to take Eden, this temple, this garden temple, and expand it around the globe so that God's glory would be seen fully throughout the whole earth. I, I think we see that in Habakkuk. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's mission that his glory would cover. And this was a commission that he gave to Adam and Eve. Protect and expand the manifestation of God's glory. We know that's a good command, right? Because God's glory is what we're made for. God's glory is what we, we find, uh, where we find our identity and our hope. God in all of his glory is what is truly good, beautiful, and best as we've been trekking through the creation narrative so far, I think that we've seen that, haven't we? God's creation is glorious. It, it is truly beautiful. And then last week we got to God talking about the creation of woman and the beauty of, of, of woman and man coming together as God intends in God's ways. All of this is very good, very beautiful, right? And then we come to verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is one of those verses that when you read it to young children, they start to giggle because they're shocked that Adam and Eve didn't care that they were naked. Oh, my goodness. Right? But what's really interesting, actually, in the Hebrew is that this word for naked in verse 25, is a different word than the word for naked just seven verses later. Which actually seems to indicate that there is a shameless nakedness that exists in this garden. And then there's a shameful nakedness that comes about. Ultimately, I think the point of verse 25 is to show that Adam and Eve were completely vulnerable and transparent before each other with no fear, no judgment, no condemnation, and their nakedness showed it. They had no fear of any type of abuse or trauma from one another. No, no fear of judgment, complete transparency, and no pain. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you imagine a world where there is no threat of another human being hurting us. What? We naturally think in terms of self-protection. Even if you think you don't, you do. I'm going to get to know this new person. I don't really know you very much. I'm going to try to figure out how this and how far can we go in this relationship because I don't know what you're going to do and if you're going to hurt me or not. And then we always are thinking this way. And in the garden, naked and unashamed. Can we agree with God that that is beautiful and very good? Wow. 
Well, now we can move forward in this scenario to see if Adam and Eve further the commission that God has given to them. Will Eden, the question is, is will Eden be expanded? Will Adam and Eve subdue and exercise dominion, ruling faithfully under God's rule? And that's an interesting thing. Like the word subdue is very interesting when we look at a world that has no sin in it. Why is God commanding to subdue? You get the question? Do you understand? Yeah, I just want to make sure these guys are up here. You might be looking at them. Hold on. In a world that is sinless, why is God commanding subduing? Would, why would there be any rebellion? And that's where we get to verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In ancient times, serpents actually represented many different types of things. Oftentimes, serpents were used in divination practices. The Hebrew word that's used here for serpent also has connotations with, with something shiny. So this, this serpent would grab their attention. This serpent is beautiful. But notice something else in this text. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had, what? Made. Now, I actually wish our English translation would have said created because it's the same word that's used earlier on for create. Remember, that's really important because only, according to the Hebrews, only God creates. We can make, but only God creates. And this is a contrast to ancient creation narratives as well, where in the ancient world, you might have the supreme God who beat the other gods out, right? Or, or an evil that was at the same level. Well, here we have in this story an evil that is contrary to God, but we're told God created this serpent, which means what? He's sovereign over the serpent. Just like God is sovereign and all-powerful over that seeming chaos of the waters and the earth being formless and void, God is sovereign over this serpent. This serpent has no power over God. Now, we don't know how evil entered into this serpent. And the Bible actually just leaves that question for us. But what we do know is that there is no evil or sin in God. And God does not tolerate sin without justice. So here we enter into this story. At this point, we have Adam and Eve together in sinless Eden. And the question is, is will Adam and Eve kick the serpent out? Will they subdue or are they going to tolerate the serpent's lies? Oh, and by the way, just in case uh, you're wondering, I think many already assume this, but this is a correct assumption. This serpent is Satan. According to Revelation 12, we read, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Okay? So he comes in the form of a serpent. Are they going to tolerate the lies now, this gets very practical for the people wandering around in the wilderness, the Israelites. Are they going to trust the lies of the serpent, or are they going to trust God? This is extremely practical, practical for us in 21st century. Are we going to trust the lies, 
or are we going to trust God's word? And so this is where I want to give you the main idea of the sermon now. Satan tempts humanity so that we would embrace lies about God and live for ourselves in shame. Satan tempts humanity so that we would embrace lies about God and live, and live for ourselves in shame. And we're just going to take this main idea and break it up here. Satan tempts humanity that we should embrace lies about God. Again, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent's more crafty. Okay, this word for crafty also means to be shrewd. Shrewdness is not always bad. Uh, it, me it can mean just being creative in certain ways of living. Satan clearly was creative in the sense of how can he rebel against God? and very creative in his rebellion. Now he's seeking to be very creative in getting human beings to rebel against God. Think about this, human beings. Who are human beings? Human beings are created in the image of God. Human beings are at the top of value within the creation order. Satan is going to the people that, that if he can get them, he gets creation destroyed. He knows that. They're the image bearers. The very name for Satan means adversary. So he is trying to break apart the relationship of humanity with God. But if Eve understood, if she understood her value, if Adam understood his value in being created in the image of God, they wouldn't listen to the lies. They, and why would they listen to a serpent when they're the image bearers? Not the serpent. But they do. By the way, this might be, this is just more of a side note. But some people I've heard jokingly say before, man, I would never give in to that temptation because if a serpent started talking to me, I'd just be distracted that a snake is talking to me and I wouldn't be paying attention to what it said. And some people will then go on and say, see, this is proof that animals talk before the fall. Um, maybe, but I don't think that's the point of this story. Uh, what it seems like, at least in my estimation, is that this temptation and fall into sin happens rather quickly. And it, it should not be surprising that Adam and Eve, they're just taking things in. So a talking serpent, should that surprise them in the midst of everything else they've just experienced? Not really. So maybe animals did talk. But if we're focusing over there, we're missing the point. Satan's mission is always to keep people separated from God. And so we have verse 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So here's the first interaction between the serpent and humanity. Now, what some people tend to think is, where's Adam in this? And they assume that he isn't around. And so they think that Satan divided and conquered. He got them apart from each other, went to Eve. But that's not what happens. Eve actually responds, in, all, in, in her responses to the serpent, she's responding in plural answers. 
functioning kind of like a spokesperson for the husband. And then just a few verses down, we read that her husband was with her. Adam's there, right? So here we have this commission God has given to them. They're naked and unashamed in the garden. They're commissioned to rule and spread the revelation of God's glory. They're called to subdue. Then this shiny, beautiful, crafty serpent shows up to talk to the woman. What takes place next helps us understand the nature or how the serpent tempts, how Satan tempts. Now, this, again, is valuable for ancient Israel to hear. How does Satan seek to deceive them? And how does Satan seek to deceive us in our day as well, in 21st century? So, so we're going to read how the serpent tempts. He tempts us to believe lies about God. Now, in our English translation, we read that Satan said to the woman, did God actually say? So it's, it's put in question form. That... That's interesting because the Hebrew construct, nowhere else where this shows up in the Old Testament, is it ever put in a question form. Instead, it's more declarative, but to cause questions, <laughs> okay? So I actually, I actually like uh, this, this translation, which I thought I had slides for. Yes, here it is. Indeed. To think that God said that you were not to eat from any tree of the garden. You get, you get that? It's to raise like, wait, that's not what God said. And yet he feels so emphatic. And what's going on here? He's, he's engaging in conversation. Come on, let me, let me draw you in. But what you also see here too is that Satan's statement here is to express shock. Shock! that God would keep you from anything good. He doesn't want you to have good. He does, why, why would he be like that? It's like, it's like Satan is causing or, or trying to plant seeds of doubt of the goodness of God in their minds. Maybe God is a Scrooge. Maybe he's a miser. Maybe he's holding back some certain things. And Satan, oh, he is appalled. Oh my, how could that be? You see how he's also sympathizing with them? Trying to show that he has some sympathy towards them. Isn't that how temptation works for us too? Why is God keeping me from this? Oh man, it would just make me feel good if I could do this. Why do I have... Maybe God, maybe God is keeping me from something that's good. Now, the woman responds. Satan is clearly exaggerating, because is that what God said? Is that what God said? No, that's not what God said. Satan is clearly exaggerating. So now, let's see. Let's see what the, the woman's response is. She says to the serpent that they can eat from, from any of the fruit of the trees, but not the one in the midst of the garden. And then she says, let me see here. Look at that. Neither, what? Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Where did that come from? Did we read that anywhere up to this point? No, we didn't read that up to this point. In certain ways, she has now exaggerated, right? 
There's, there's an aspect where, where I say, there, there, if I can word it this way, there's a legalism that's, that's taking place. Uh, a rule around a rule in order to keep the rule. See that? Have, have you ever done that in relating to sin too? I don't want to do that thing, so I'm going to create this rule and this rule too. And then you feel like you failed God when you don't do this. But was this ever the rule of God? No? Uh, but now you can feel guilt and shame because you failed this man-made rule. What? But here she is. Neither shall you touch it. Neither shall you touch it. Well, now he's, he's drawn her in. Now, by the way, I need to say this. I, I am not opposed to putting up boundaries and certain things in your life to help you to fight against sin. Okay? But what I am concerned about is when we depend on our boundaries as that's the thing that's going to rescue me. Or like crutches. What are crutches for? To stay on crutches the rest of your life? No, to help you to then get back to walking again, okay? So Eve, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent now has the woman engaged in conversation. She's not quoting God's word verbatim. And, and, and this is extremely important from a scriptural perspective. God's word brings life. Yes? Genesis 1, he spoke life. He spoke life. He spoke life. He spoke life. We need to treat God's words very seriously because his words are life. Don't add, don't take away from his words because his words are life. So she's not trusting God's words and, and quoting them verbatim. She speaks incorrectly, and the serpent responds now with outright rejection. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent now, he's not playing dumb anymore, right? Even in the Hebrew, the, the form, this word for not you will not, that word not is actually in the beginning of the sentence. So in Hebrew, if they wanted to emphasize something, they take a word and put it towards the beginning. So it would really more literally be, not you shall surely die. No way. The serpent is trying to exercise some authority that he does not possess and say, God's a liar. You won't. He openly defies God's words. You see what the serpent's doing? He's, he's tempted the man and the woman to think God's a miser. And now God, in certain ways, is self-protective. Because, like, if they experience this thing, then God's, you know, his order is going to be out. His control is going to go under. And so God doesn't want you to experience these things because he just wants this sinful control. Can you, can you relate when you're tempted? Can you? Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't care. If God really cared, he'd give me this. I wouldn't have to die to this thing over here. I'm not going to die. I've seen other people, they do the same things. They don't die. They seem to get all the good stuff. So I can just be like them. Any of you ever thought things like that? The psalmist even at times says those things. Ecclesiastes, Solomon says those things. 
But ultimately, what Satan is doing is he's tempting them to believe lies about God because he wants to break the communion. We were made for communion with God. If we no longer see his love and see his grace, we will defy him and work against him. But we need his love and grace. We need his glory. Satan tempts humanity. He also tempts humanity so that we would live for ourselves in shame. We're told their eyes were opened. We're also told by the serpent, you will be like God. So, so let me, let's, just, let's just take this too. His temptations are very nuanced, aren't they? Because aren't, aren't humans already like God? We're created in the image of God. We're already, we are the most like God than any other created thing. We're already like God. And Satan says, well, you'll be like God. But he says in a very specific way, knowing good and evil. Humanity was not created to be able to decipher between good and evil. You ever feel confused when sin happens in other people's lives or when people hurt you? And that's why we, we go to counselors. That's why we talk to other people. What do we do? What do we do? Because sin always messes things up. We were not meant to know the difference between good and evil. But, but what Satan says is this will be a good thing for you. Your eyes will be opened. But, but then my other question is, didn't, weren't their eyes already opened? Yeah? Because Adam, when he saw the creation of the woman, he agreed with God. Whoa, this is very good. His eyes are open to what he needs his eyes to be open to. He doesn't need to be opened to evil. What he needs to do is when evil shows up, he needs to cut the serpent's head off. Moving right along. But Satan has more desires here. And what Satan does in, in how he communicates, I believe he, let's see here. The serpent tempts humanity by trying to get them to believe that their worth is found in something other than God and that they need the created in order to have greater meaning. We see that. In verse 6, let's see here. My slides are all messed up. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What? All of a sudden, the assessment of human beings is anti-God. All the way up to this point, good meant good. After this day, it was 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 good. And then after Adam and Eve are married, this is very good. This is the first time that evil is described as good. And it comes from the mouth of the woman. She saw that it was good. It's not good. And it's, and it's not not good because there was some mysterious poison in that fruit. This was the test of God. Are they going to honor him and his glory or not? 
She says this is good. It's not good. That word for good, if you remember, has ideas of goodness, beauty, and function. God has already said, you eat this, you won't function. You won't function for my glory. You will surely die. She clearly believes the lies of the enemy over the truth of God. And I hope you see this. That what Satan has done is he has said, look to the created for meaning. Look to the created for identity and life. Live for yourself means just take whatever you feel you want for you. And that's, that's, that's major condescension from the place that God has put human beings, Right? Where he created Adam and Eve, it was, you're in his image, rule under his rule, commune with God, and you have everything. And Satan says, oh, God's making you miss out. God isn't giving you what you need. Here, take this piece of fruit that God made, and that's going to give you meaning. Isn't that foolish? But isn't that how our sin works? That we always go to created things. Oh, if I just have this. If I could just express myself in this way, if I, could just, if, if I could just be able to have this relationship or this job or this amount of money or, or this amount of power or if people really respected me, that's all created things. That's not where our worth and identity comes from. Amen? It's not. Our worth and identity comes from God. And so I'm reminded of the passage that we read earlier in the service, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Get that? That's why, that's why death is inevitable when you choose sin. Because you're living for things that are passing. And whatever, whatever you supremely value, that's what you worship. And if what you worship dies, you die. But whoever does the will of the Father, of God, abides forever. So we see in this text, again in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She, saw, she thought it was good. But then to, to add to this horror, she took, ate, and gave to her husband. Man, he's a great guy. Wonderful husband. A plus. Let her deal with the serpent, and I'm not going to say anything. It's interesting in the Hebrew form, the, the phrase took, eat, and gave is actually written in Hebrew words in such a structure that it's really hard to pronounce. It's like a tongue twister. You have to be, you have to focus to say the words, showing the difficulty of this moment, showing the pain of this moment, that she took 
she ate, and she gave. And both the woman and Adam ate. Now, this is, this is a horror because in Hosea chapter 6, we're actually told that God made a covenant with Adam. And Adam is the one that is ultimately responsible for what's taking place here. The covenant is with Adam. Remember, Eve was not created yet when God gave the command. Adam was. And God told Adam. And so actually later on in the scriptures, we find, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What some people like to do with this verse is they say, oh, well, what Paul is saying in that writing is that women are more easily deceived than men. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the woman was deceived. Adam wasn't. You get that? Adam was not deceived. The man was given the great responsibility, the great accountability before the Lord. The woman was deceived. Adam wasn't. He let the serpent tempt his wife. He knew that the serpent was lying and knew that his wife was not speaking accurately. He was not deceived. And he let it all happen. Now, when you look at this, you can say, this doesn't make sense. And you might be, again, tempted to think, I would never give in if I was Adam and Eve and in this perfect world. I would totally love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you know you, which I'm assuming you do, you would say, never mind, that's not true. Because we all know sin doesn't make sense, right? Whenever we sin, why did I do it? Okay, we can come up with some kind of answers, but none of them are really excuses. They're explanations in certain ways, but they're not excuses. Same thing with Adam and Eve. It doesn't make sense. Why would you defy the creator who has loved you and placed you in this world and given you glory? Adam and Eve defy. And then we look at verse 7 to see the results. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened, not in a life-giving way, but in a death-producing way. They knew that they were naked. Again, different word for naked here than it was earlier. What's, what's Satan's intention? Just live in shame. Live for yourself in shame and try to figure out how to atone for yourself. Try to figure out how to live in this shame. What do they do? They sew fig leaves together. The fig leaves, it would have been a lar those are large leaves that they can sew together to cover themselves. What you see even by the sewing of the fig leaves is that they don't trust each other, right? I can't be naked before you. All of a sudden, human relationships have been cut. There's danger. They feel it. But they think the answer is, sow my fig leaves. That's how I'm going to atone for myself. But this goes back to how I began this sermon, where, where 
maybe you walk away from last week's sermon or you walk away from other sermons or other types of teachings and you say, I'm just going to try harder next time. I'm just going to read my Bible more and pray every day and then I'll feel better about myself. That's man-made attempts. That, that's you sowing your own fig leaves. And what we see through the rest of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament are examples after examples of people sowing their own fig leaves to try to rid from shame. One, one example that I think clearly connects with this story is the Israelites in the wilderness. And they're, they're complaining again, God's brought us out in this wilderness to kill us. And this is Numbers chapter 21. And God sends serpents. And actually, a lot of people die because they get bit by the serpents. How are they going to recover? How can they be saved from this poison, from the serpents? And God says, get this, this pole and put a bronze serpent on it. That's clear connections with the word for serpent and Satan in the garden. And he's stamped through on that pole, right? He looked to that serpent and you'll be healed. Not because the serpent has magical powers. God is teaching something in this. You can't save yourself. Will you trust me? It might seem foolish. Well, how is looking at a bronze serpent going to save me? Are you going to trust God or not? Will you look to him to save you, or are you going to trust you and your efforts to save you? I need to do something more just to make myself feel like I'm really forgiven. No. But what's also very interesting about that Numbers 21 passage is why a serpent? Why put the serpent on the pole? Because the serpent is a symbol of divination. I mean, even if you think about the Israelites, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, what was often on his head? It's a serpent. So why would a serpent heal them? Do you get that question? Why would a serpent be healing? This is what blows my mind. Jesus in John chapter 3, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you say, wait a second, is Jesus the serpent? Is Jesus wicked? No, 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 no. The scriptures go on to teach us that Jesus took the sins of humans on himself, so much so that it can be said of him that he became sin. It was as if Jesus was the serpent. Can you fathom that? The eternal son of God is sin. And then Galatians tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is the serpent on the pole. Only he could satisfy the justice 
that sinners ought to receive. There is no atoning you can do to rescue yourself. Jesus went to the tree. Jesus bore the just punishment and wrath of God in the place of sinners. And if you have trusted in Christ, you have freedom. You have freedom knowing your sins are atoned for. You don't have to sow fig leaves because God has set you free. God has set you free so you can actually be transparent. Yes, even transparent about your sins that might still be in your life. Why? Because there's no condemnation for you anymore in Christ Jesus. Satan wants to keep the condemnation, heap the condemnation, keep you self-deceived. God opens our eyes. Do you know that freedom? Because here's, here's where my mind was really blown this past week in a good way. The woman says, take, eat, and gives it to her husband. And it took thousands of years before take and eat was reversed. You hear that? Jesus eating with his disciples the night before. And he says, take, eat. I have no doubt that Jesus was thinking about the garden. Those were death words until Jesus came and says, I reverse the curse. Take, eat. Oh, and if you have trusted in Christ, then what we find is that actually now those of us who know Jesus Christ, the Bible says, now the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The Bible goes on in the book of Revelation. It says the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down and he accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And then we move further on in Revelation and we find that Jesus brings God's glory all the way around the globe. Jesus is the greater Adam. See, Satan tempts humanity so that we would embrace lies about God and live ashamed. Jesus offers humanity himself so that they would return to God in the freedom of truth and grace so that we would be unashamed and reconciled before him, so that we can commune with him. Take, eat. Whose voice are you listening to? Which one? The serpent's voice, take and eat, or Jesus' voice, take and eat? This is why we had to do communion. We had to. Because Jesus says to you, Christian, if you are trusting in Christ, Jesus says, take and eat. His body, his blood is your life. 
because he's reversed the curse. So Christian, if you, as you take this, let this be a reminder. Let this be a reminder of God's great love and grace towards you. Hopefully I don't embarrass someone by saying this, but yesterday I was meeting with a couple of guys and one of the guys, as we were talking about humanity created in the image of God, he said, Jesus is God's reaction to sin. This is Christ's body, broken for you. Take and eat. And Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christian, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Nothing, you have nothing to add. You're forgiven not because of how great you are. You're forgiven because of how great Jesus is. He's made a covenant. God keeps. God keeps his promises. Drink from it, all of you. So now I'm going to pray for us and we'll be able to worship in giving and a little bit of music before we conclude with our benediction. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, triune God, for your eternal covenant and plan, your eternal love and grace towards all who have life in Christ. Oh God, thank you that we can praise you. Thank you that we can take and eat, that all it is is look, look to Jesus. Look. And Lord, I pray for people here, if they don't trust in Christ, that they would look. And for people who, who have expressed faith in the past, but they're dry and they're weary and they're not communing with you, God, I pray they would look and see life and hope and health and beauty in Jesus. Oh God, increase our joy in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to let you know that there are going to be people up here, myself included, that if you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if you have burdens that you need to share, if there are temptations and sins and struggles that you want someone to pray with and even some direction on how to fight those things, there's going to be people up here ready and willing to talk with you. Um, I'm going to be up here as well, and I just want to say, if, if you want to talk about intriguing things about the sermon, please wait until I'm not here, um, because I want to make myself available to individuals as well. But hear these words of encouragement. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.